Welcome to Cafecito con Math. Since 2007, Math has worked to bring low-income and immigrant households out of the financial shadows. How do we do this? By building on what's already good in people's lives and listening at every step in their journeys. Today, we invite you to do the same. Hi everyone, my name is Rocio Rodarte and I'm a policy and communications manager here at Math and your podcast host for today's very special episode. This is our first podcast ever and throughout the first season, we'll tell the story of how Math and the people we serve responded and adapted to COVID-19. The pandemic has been an unimaginable struggle for everyone, including immigrants and small business owners like Diana. It was scary to hear about it, but I didn't really have any expectations. I didn't really know how it was going to impact every single area of our lives. I think it, it hit home once I had to close my business. I was like, oh my God, you know, like nothing's permanent. Like you could have a job and you might feel like you're set, but something like this could happen and you throws everything off and your life depends on it. Your kid, your dogs, everything. Diana was just one of many people trying to adapt to this new reality. One that has been especially unforgiving for immigrants left without a social safety net. And while COVID-19 may have shocked people with its impact, this unfortunately isn't new, but more on that later. First, I'd like to introduce you to today's guest and the person who'd know best. He's none other than our founder and CEO, Jose Quinones. Hey, Rocio, so glad to be here talking to you about these important topics. Yeah, thanks Thanks for being here. I'm here with my cafecito and really excited to, to have this conversation with you today. Mom to my third cafecito of the day. So. Same. <laughs> I didn't want to out myself, but same. I'd love to start this conversation by talking about the work MAF has done in the last year and a half in response to this pandemic. We raised $55 million for a rapid response fund to provide more than 63,000 grants to students, workers, and immigrant families from all over the country, 48 states in total. This number is a huge feat, but it's also really sobering. It demonstrates a massive gap in equity, one that organizations like ours are going to be needing for years to come. Jose, for an organization like MAF that has historically focused on credit-building loans, what did this shift mean? You know, Rocio, every time I think about what we've experienced in the past year, I'm always in awe of like, the amount of work that we were able to produce so quickly. And it's incredible. I mean, you know, just to, you know, um, now look back and then really be able to sort of see that we were able to touch, you know, over 63,000 people by giving them, you know, much needed grants, you know, in the time that they were being excluded from receiving assistance from, you know, other sources. It's mind boggling, frankly, how a small nonprofit organization, you know, headquartered in San Francisco to be able to be in a position to disperse so much money to so many people. But not only that, right, it's not just like the the 63 number, 63,000 number, but it's about how specific that we were able to sort of target that grants, that that aid, that help, you know, to people that were excluded from receiving financial assistance, people that are, you know, low-income immigrants, people that were, you know, really contending with a lot of, uh, you know, barriers in their financial lives. Because it wasn't just to anybody, right? You know, we, we didn't do an application process that, that it was a more for like first come, first serve, or we didn't disperse this money in on lottery basis. And it wasn't just like everybody that can submit an application. I mean, we focused, you know, this very critical aid, you know, to the people that were, you know, that, that were last in the least, the people that were excluded from receiving other source of help. So 
every time I think about that, I, and I, I'm blown away by it, you know, because I'm like, how did that happen? You know, how were we able to, you know, step up in such a way and be so thoughtful and, and focusing on, on those communities? And I think, of course, there's, you know, it was 14 years of work that actually led to that point of us being able to be, to make that happen, you know, in the way that we did. And, and of course, there's a lot more to be said about that, but because it didn't happen just overnight. It's an incredible process, but again, it wasn't that we were transformed, but it was actually we were building up over the years yeah, to be able to sort of deliver at this critical moment. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm wondering if like maybe instead of a shift or like you said, instead of transform, it's more of a revamp. Like we've been doing this for a long time and it's almost like we're kind of preparing for something like this to happen. And then when it happened, we were ready to go. We were ready to meet our clients where they were like we have for such a long time. And so thank you for sharing that, Jose. And so now the need was tremendous because millions of immigrants and their families were completely shut out of the federal government. And to paint a more clear picture of what this means, a family with two undocumented parents and two children was denied upward of $11,400 in much needed federal relief during the pandemic. That is huge. I mean, we're talking about families who lost so much. Some even lost their entire income during this pandemic. And they were denied critical aid that could have helped them pay their rent, put food on the table, feed their families, and just want to stress the incredible loss that that, that, that created in their lives. But of course, none of this is new because before the pandemic, many immigrant people were living in the shadows and pushed out of a social safety net that was not designed for them. A safety net that they pay into every single year. You know, it's reported that in 2015, immigrant workers with ITINs paid more than $23 billion in federal taxes alone. And these are taxes that fund critical social safety net programs from Medicaid to food stamps to housing subsidies and insurance. The list really goes on. And they are programs which they themselves are barred from accessing, even when the whole world is thrown into crisis. So, Jose, what is this context, you know, this context of it being barred from benefits of exclusion mean for mass work? I think this pandemic really showed a lot of the injustices that we've been you know, fighting against over the years. I mean, you know, so the idea of, of people being denied services in, in, in their time of need is not new. You know, I mean, it's been like that's been the case for immigrants you know, for, for years now, and, and particularly when, even when they actually are the ones that are paying their taxes and, you know, contributing to the tax base, you know, they're actually being denied assistance left and right. I mean, just recently there was a, you know, public charge, you know, policy uh, from the prior administration that really sent this uh, ripple effect of fear that people were, uh, you know, now more fearful of actually, you know, um, reaching out for assistance when they need help. Yeah, because they did not want to be uh, deemed a public charge that could go against their, you know, petitions for uh, legalization at some point. And so that fear kept a lot of people from, from accessing help, when, especially when they need it. I mean, but that's just one point, right? I mean, there's many others where people are, were actually excluded from, from receiving help. I mean, you mentioned that $11,000 that could have gone to immigrant families. I, I think about that number a lot because... It wasn't just the, the fact of like not receiving the, that 11000 It was what happened after that because in not receiving $11,000 to help them stabilize their financial lives during, in, the, in the midst of the pandemic, you know, it meant that they had to access that money somewhere else. And what basically what happened, people were uh, forced to, 
you know, use all of their savings. You know, they were forced to uh, you know, acquiring loans in any, in any which way they could from, you know, maxing out whatever credit cards that they may have or, or getting loans from family or friends just to pay rent or buy food. And so, so it wasn't just like the, the lack of 11000 Now they're $11,000 in debt. You know, and then that debt, you know, it, it's sort of, uh, uh, it's not payable, you know, you know, just right off the bat. I mean, they, it's going to take them months and years for them to pay that off. And because within that debt comes with, you know, comes interest, comes other fees, you know, comes other things where, you know, people are, are digging themselves deeper into a hole that they could have been prevented just by them having access to that money, just like everybody else in America, people that needed it. Jose, you bring up so many great points that I would love to run with every single point that you just said, because there's so much, I, so many thoughts I have for sure. But I think the, the thing that I, I really want to come back to is the idea of timing and how timing is everything in people's lives. You know, last year, what we did with immigrant, with the Immigrant Families Fund, we stepped up to give people cash in their time at the specific time where they needed it the most so that they could have, they could pay their rent that same month. And so just thinking about how, you know, as they're trying to make up for this debt while still remaining excluded from all these benefits that could help them catch up in the process is just an array of problems that I think we need to continue to put out there and address. And so that's why the work that we're doing is so important because if we don't show up, who will? I actually wanted to ask you about this, Jose. How do you inspire people to step up to the plate? I've been thinking about that a lot. I mean, I, I think, you know, for us, of course, you know, we did step up, right, with this rapid response grant process past 18 months. But we couldn't have done this ourselves, of course. You know, we had to work with uh, philanthropy. You mentioned that we had over 65 different partners in, in philanthropy that, that, that really stepped up with us. Yeah, because they were the ones that have the capital. They were the ones that that provided us the funding so that that way we can, you know, direct that to people that, that needed it. So we had to build those partnerships in a way, you know, that mattered. And so I, I think for us, it was just a question of saying, like, look, we're here to do this work. We want to do this work. You know, we have the capacity to do this work. We have the technology to do this work. But more importantly, we have the relationships with the actual clients, you know, trusting relationships so that we can say we can actually deliver this money, you know, now in the moment that they need it and do it in a way that is efficient, that is effective and also dignified. And I think because of that, because we're able to sort of communicate that, not just, you know, during the uh, rapid response, but over the years, I think foundations were able to sort of trust us with their, with their capital. I mean, we had, you know, foundations, we have family foundations, we have community foundations, we have corporate foundations that we've never worked with in the past. You know, they leaned on us to make sure that we were able to sort of deliver that money to people in, in a timely manner. And so, so to me, you know, I think that inspiring people to step up, is, it really is, is about making sure that we had a very solid foundation of trust, you know, with our, with our clients and the partners. You know, because we were essentially just the conduits of, of their desire to help people. I want to take a step back and rewind to March 2020 when the Rapid Response Fund didn't yet exist and COVID-19 was just starting to hit the U.S. in a major way. Jose, even before the pandemic struck here in the U.S. and the first stay-at-home orders were issued, MAF was already preparing for what all of this would mean for immigrant families in the U.S. Take us back to those days when this all started I know it feels like an eternity ago, 
but what was happening? What was going through your head? What were you feeling? Yeah, you know, it, it does feel like an eternity away. I mean, it's what I call like the before times, right? I, I do remember in, in February, you know, having internal conversations about, you know, oh, there's this thing that's that is going around, you know, in China that we that is popping up in the news, and we should start thinking about how to how to prepare for something like that. And I recall some conversations about that, but when it really struck home was when the mayor of San Francisco, you know, issued her first stay-at-home orders. That's when we, you know, we had a pivot, like, from one day to the next thing. And I remember the order came in on a Friday, and then by Monday, you know, we had to sort of, you know, work from home. And then by that day, you know, over the weekend, really, we had to come up with a plan about how we were going to respond to help our clients. Because, you know, knowing that, you know, that that stay-at-home order meant that, People were going to lose income. They were going to lose money. They were going to lose hours from work. They were going to be left, you know, they were going to lose their jobs at no fault of their own. And so come Monday, you know, we were already talking about how to, you know, how to respond to this crisis that we didn't know much about, right? And then that same day, you know, I was getting calls from foundations as well saying like, hey, how are you guys going to respond? You know, because at that point, Again, over the years, over the 14 years of doing this work, you know, we build that reputation already. So, so, so foundation heads were already calling or emailing, you know, asking about how we were going to respond, you know, to in, in this moment. So, because of that, we, you know, we we very quickly, you know, stood up that rapid response fund, not not knowing how to what extent or how much or how we were going to make this happen. But, but when we first got our first grant approved, I think it was within maybe by Tuesday or Wednesday of that same week, you know, it was a conversation with the heads of the college futures and, and you know, because they wanted to sort of support or target support at, at college students in California. And so we used that grant to, so that that way we can stand up this particular way of, of rapid response, focus on, on college students first. And then while we were doing that, we were building that whole infrastructure of doing, of helping other other communities as well. But it, it was, again, it was a moment of, of complete confusion. You know, we, we, we didn't know what was going to happen or how long the stay-at-home order was going was to stay. But I think we, we knew deep down that it was going to impact the, the people that we serve the hardest. You know, we knew deep down that, you know, undocumented immigrants, families, people that we work with day in, day out, we knew that they were going to be most hit by, by the, the loss of income, and, and also because they weren't going to get any support from the federal government. And so so we needed to show up. And and, so, and, and we did. I mean, again, you know, this is one of those moments where, you know, we've, you know, we've been working, you know, for the past 14 years, you know, building our technology, our capacity, our staff, our skills, and our insights. And I think back to that week and being forced to work from home, you know, not being in, a, in the office where we can, you know, huddle together, you know, strategize together. It was pretty scary, frankly. But that fear, I think, I remember just kind of using that as fuel to make sure that we showed up to the people that, that needed help the most. Everything you just shared, Jose, I think brings a lot of feelings as I'm hearing you talk. You know, you're just you're describing confusion, chaos, uncertainty, fear, also hope and collective action. And so what I'm wondering is, you know, of of all the things, like all the craziness that was happening, you know, all the chaos and uncertainty that was happening in that moment in time back in March 2020, what would you say is the most surprising thing that happened to you? Of all the things that were, all the balls that were up in the air, 
What was the most surprising thing for you? The most surprising thing, frankly, was when how fast the sentiment dissipated, the sentiment of us being united, the sentiment that we needed to come together as a country, as a people, and how fast that kind of went away. Because early on, I remember feeling that. I remember hearing that. I remember reading that in you know, from our, you know, our leaders just to, because we knew it was like a big unknown. But but as soon as as soon as this report that talked about the racial disparities of who was getting COVID and who was who wasn't getting COVID, I remember that that sentiment just kind of went away. You know, that, that that sense of urgency just you know dissipated. The sense of like you know coming together just like oh you know that 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 was an afterthought now because this disease or this virus which is impacting, you know, people cover more. And so it doesn't matter. Like, and then other people were just taking a step back, you know, from that urgency of coming together. And, and I feel that that moment, you know, was really the turning point on this, on, on our fight against COVID, that if we would have kept that sense of togetherness, a sense of, of coming together as a country, as a people to, to battle this, I think we would have been in a completely different situation than the, which we're now. I mean, you know, there's, I think we just crossed over that 700,000 people that have died just in the U.S. alone from COVID. I mean, 700,000 people have died. And, and I, I think that number you know, wouldn't have been this, that high if we, could, we, if we would have kept the sense that we need, to, we need to be united in this fight against COVID. That surprised me, you know, and that, that hurt, actually. That hurt because it was, it was a sense that Oh, well, you know, if this is going to just impact people of color, then, you know, who cares, right? I'm sad that that happened. But yeah, that was, the, I would say that, 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 that was surprising and, and hurtful, most of all. Thank you for sharing that, Jose. And everything you just discussed, like, I feel like I've heard snippets of this here and there, and I still get the chills listening to that moment in time, that experience that everyone at MAP and yourself included went through and, and trying to step, step up and trying to garner support from others and trying to reaffirm and tell the world that there were people that were being excluded and we needed to do something about it. And so what I'm thinking of is, you know, it sounds like you could easily write a book about just that moment in time, those early beginnings. And my question to you, Jose, is what would you title that story, given what you just said in a few words? I mean, I, I think it's, you know, I mean, I think about math in and, and, and that regard and, and everything that we were doing. I think what we're demonstrating is, is what, what does it take to show up? You know, to the people that, that have been left behind, people that get ignored, people that are in the margins of society. And then what does it take to show up and, and provide something of meaningful contributions and meaningful support? And I, th I think for me, it, it's, it's um, you know, it would be something around about like, we're still here. That despite this pandemic, despite this, the pain and the hurt, despite being pushed out, you know, not just this during this pandemic, but over the years, over the millennia of being, you know, being colonized and twice over, that we're still here and we still matter. And, and we need to do all that we can to show up and support one another and however we can. And, and when we do that, do better. You know, and when we think we've done enough, we do more. So in a nutshell, it sounds to me like the work continues. Jose. Any last words for our listeners today? I want to thank you, Rocio, for just having this conversation with me. I mean, I, I know, you know, most of the time we just talk about work, right? But, you know, it's, <laughs> it's fun work. <laughs> yeah, it, it is, you know, but but it's always great to be able to sort of step back for a second and, and just, um, you know, reflect 
you know, on all, on all that we've created together. So I, I really, you know, enjoy that. I would say that uh, as a message for everybody, you know, that, you know, this is the moment not for us to shrink, you know, for not for us to become invisible, but this is a moment for us to show up. You know, this is a moment for us to do more and to do better. And I think that's, uh, that's our call to action. But I think that's something that we can all do, uh, you know, particularly people in the nonprofit world that, you know, we need to do more and we need to do better for the people left behind. Yes, show up, do more and do better because we're still here. Thank you so much, Jose, for speaking with us today. And for our listeners, the work continues. Join us next time to listen to Diana, who you heard on this podcast just a few minutes ago, sharing her experiences being a small business owner and a working mom through COVID-19. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Cafecito con Math. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you can catch the next episode as soon as it's posted. And be sure to follow us online if you want to learn more about our work, join a free financial education class, or get more news and updates on Cafecito con Math. We're at missionassetfund.org and on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. <laughs>